This morning, as we continue our called study, we take a look at one of my favorite texts in all of Scripture. So be opening your Bibles, please, to the sixth chapter of Isaiah and the powerful call of the prophet that we will study in just a moment. As you find Isaiah chapter 6, I ask you a question. Have you ever looked at a situation and failed to see the big picture? Now, I've done that many times, and I have uh, the blessing of looking back and saying, as I looked back on that moment, well, I didn't see the big picture then, but in the moment, I thought I was seeing the whole picture, but I wasn't. I missed a bigger picture. Bruce Larson, for example, a well-known Christian author, tells of a story some years ago when his kids were small, and he was out in California, and he was taking his family on a bike ride, and they were out in a riding area and they saw a sign that said naturalist camp and he thought well that would be cool to take the kids to this part where they've really developed the nature it'll be real pretty so they take off down a trail and soon he discovered what naturalist camp really meant because six totally nude people came up on their bicycles and started riding beside his family And he is trembling, thinking what his children are thinking and might say when finally his five-year-old looks over and says, Dad, mm, they're not wearing their helmets. (laughs) Which was an accurate description, but probably missing a bigger picture. The prophet Isaiah once struggled to see the big picture. Notice the very first phrase of our text. It says in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died. And before you can appreciate anything else we read, you have to unpack that one little phrase. Uzziah had been king of Judah for about 50 years. Now, if you remember your Old Testament history, the kingdom had divided. There was a northern kingdom who had nothing but one ungodly king after another. And God finally punished their rebellion and the Assyrians captured the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom, sometimes called Judah, had good and bad kings in random succession. Uzziah was one of those rare good kings. But he was never able to rid the country of adultery. Idol worship was still prevalent. And Isaiah is worried. In fact, Jewish tradition says Isaiah's father was brother to the king. Isaiah was an elite. He was used to being in the court. Now Uzziah is gone. He doesn't know if the next king is going to be a good one or a bad one. There's an internal corruption. There's the external threat of the Assyrians on the border. They've already wiped out the northern kingdom. Now they're on the border of the southern kingdom. This is a scary time. And he's got a good reason to be alarmed that day when he goes to church. So he goes to the temple. And the last person he was expecting to see that day at church was God. Now I say that because I think a lot of people come to church every week not really expecting God to show up. But look at the next phrase. 
In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. Notice he's seated on a throne. He did not see the Lord pacing back and forth, wringing his hands, fretting and anxious, saying, Oh no, what am I going to do now? King Uzziah's dead. What's going to happen next? He saw a king that never dies, who never abdicates, who is never overthrown and never overruled. And why was it important for God to give Isaiah a bigger picture? Because sometimes before God can open our ears to a call, He's got to open our eyes to reality. And that's what happened. Isaiah was about to get a shake-up call. Now we're ready to read. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, here am I. Send me. Before he had only seen a smaller picture. All he could see was King Uzziah was dead. And he didn't know what kind of shape the country was going to be. And what was going to happen next. Then he goes to church. And God shows up. And he sees a bigger picture. And he looked up. And he saw God throw his weight around. He was shaken by a vision of the glory of God. You see, things always shake when God shows up and displays His glory. In Exodus 19, the children of Israel have been led out of Egypt and they come to Mount Sinai. And God says to Moses, you tell the people on the third day to be at the base of the mountain because I'm going to show up. He's about to give them the Ten Commandments. So they all get out there and at that mountain. And here's what the Bible says. The Lord descended on the mountain. And it was covered with dark smoke. And there was thunder and there was lightning. And there was the peal of a trumpet. And the whole mountain trembled violently. Now you might say that's a metaphor. I'm just telling you, this is what the Bible says. God showed up and the mountain shook. In Acts chapter 4, the saints are told they can't talk about Jesus anymore. So they get together and they pray about it. And they say, Lord, you give us more courage to do what got us in trouble in the first place. And the Bible says, the room where they were praying shook. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. When God shows up, things Shake. 
Because you see, the Hebrew word glory actually means weighty, heavy. The idea behind glory is you're talking about something that is substantive, something that is real, something that carries weight. Now, this helps us understand then what sin is. Sin is when you let anything or anybody in your life have more weight than God does. It doesn't matter if it's a good thing or a good person. If there's anything in your life that carries more weight with you than God does, it is sin because you're giving glory to something that ought to go to God. That's why God says later in the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, I'm the Lord, that's my name. I will not give my glory to another. Now, God doesn't say that because he's got an ego. He says it because his nature is truthfulness. He cannot lie. God cannot pretend that there's anybody or anything out there that is his rival that ought to have as much weight in your life as he does. And so sometimes... God has to show up and throw his weight around. He's even been known to do it at church. To help us get a bigger picture. Because I want you to understand something. There's a big difference between believing in God. And having an experience of his glory. My guess is almost everybody in this room at some level believes in the concept of God. But a lot of you have never been shaken by His reality. See, when God is a concept, He is lighter than you are. And the nice thing about a light God is you can just move Him around wherever you want Him to be to fit the agenda of your life. Because you are heavier than God. And so God never shakes your reality. Because God as a concept doesn't have enough weight. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's suppose this bucket of water was my reality, my life, my agenda. And this is God as a concept. Very nice, very attractive, very pretty. But God as a concept doesn't shake my reality. God as a concept doesn't carry much weight. God as a concept has no glory. That's not the God that Isaiah saw. Isaiah saw a God that was heavy. Isaiah saw a God that made things shake. Isaiah saw a God that made reality different. Some of us need a shake-up call. We need to see God in all His glory so that His agenda will become weightier than our own. And that's what happened to Isaiah. One glimpse of the big picture and he was all shook up. Let me explain. He was shaken first by a vision of God's holiness. You see, in the Hebrew language, if you want to emphasize something, you repeat it. Example, you see in the Old Testament, something was made of pure gold. The Hebrew actually says gold gold. A deep pit is actually a pit pit. 
What do the angels stand around the throne of God and say? Holy, holy, holy. They just say that word over and over and over. It's the only attribute of God mentioned three times a row in the whole Bible. Did you know that the qualifier of holy as an adjective is used before God's name more than all the other qualifiers in the Old Testament put together? If there's one thing the Bible wants you to know about God, He's holy. Holy means apartness. That's the basic idea. That there's nothing like God. The very godness of God means He's separate from all that isn't God. Later, God says in Isaiah, To whom will you compare me? Who's my equal? Says the Holy One. What are you going to compare God to? You can't compare Him to creation. He's spoken into existence. You can't compare Him to humanity. God doesn't fit into any box we want to try to fit Him in. He's totally unlike, he's totally undetermined by anything apart from himself. See, holiness is not just an aspect of God's nature. It is the very essence of his nature. His love is holy. His mercy is holy. His wrath is holy. His wisdom is holy. There's nothing about God that you can compare to anything or anyone in all of creation. I want you to ponder this for a moment. Because it is a heavy thought. How holy is God? God is so distinct. God is so unique. God is so apart from anything else that even angels that have never sinned have to cover their face in His presence when they tell Him how holy He is. Now that's good news and bad news. The good news is, since God is completely unaffected by anything outside of Himself, He's always on the throne. It doesn't matter if the stock market crashes. It doesn't matter what particular empire of the day is the hottest flavor. It doesn't matter if tsunamis or earthquakes come or go. God's on the throne. Always has been, always will be. That's the good news. Here's the bad news. How can you stand in the presence of a God like this? When even angels have to cover their face. It's one reason I believe the Bible's inspired. I don't think men would invent a God like this. When men invent gods, they have flaws. Why would men ever invent a God whose own perfection becomes the basis for our judgment? See, that's the second thing that shook Isaiah up. He saw the big picture and he became aware of his sinfulness. Woe is me, he said. I'm an unclean person and I live among unclean people. Let me tell you something. The vision of God always shakes the self-image of man. Check it out in your Bible. Job thought he'd have a debate with God. God showed up and had a little conversation with Job. And Job says at the end of that conversation, I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. Peter meets Jesus. Jesus says, put your nets on that side of the boat. He hadn't caught anything all night. He does what Jesus says, and Jesus has fish swimming to the nets. What's the first thing Peter does? Falls down and says, depart from me, Lord, I'm sinful. Nobody in the whole Bible, nobody ever had an experience of the glory of God and then walked up and handed God their resume. I think that's one reason we prefer the small picture. I can prop up my 
imagine self-image a lot easier if I don't compare myself to God and just compare myself to you. I don't mean that as an insult. You're good people, but I feel a whole lot better about myself if I compare myself to you. It's like the story of the couple that got a brand new set of neighbors. Brand new married couple moved in next door and young newlywed was hanging her wash out in the backyard and the older lady was sitting in the kitchen looking outside with her husband saying, that poor girl doesn't know how to do wash yet. Look how dingy that wash looks. No one taught her, I guess. And this went on for several months. Every time the young mom would hang up her wash, the older lady would say, look at that. Maybe she didn't know what kind of soap to use. Well, a few months later, she's hanging up the wash one morning and the lady's there in the kitchen with her husband and says, well, look at that. That wash looks better than it's ever looked. I wonder what changed. Her husband said, I got up early this morning and cleaned our windows. (laughs) See, that's what we do. As long as I can look at you and not see the big picture, I don't have to notice the dirt in my own life. But when God comes down... I can't do that anymore. I suspect Isaiah thought he was pretty heavy. He was an elite, related to the king, respected preacher. And then God showed up. And i tell you something. Isaiah saw that angel go and get a coal. And that coal from that altar was so hot, even the angel used tongs to hold it. And started flying toward that sinful man. And Isaiah had one thought. I'm a goner. God is issuing the death I deserve. I cannot stand in the presence of this kind of God. And that angel came and he touched Isaiah's mouth. And Isaiah heard words he could never have imagined. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. And Isaiah was totally shaken by the gift of God's righteousness. And would you please notice two very important things. Number one, where did that coal come from? It came from the altar. What altar? The altar where blood had to be shed before anybody could enter the Holy of Holies and stand before God. That's where that coal came from. The place where blood is shed. And please notice something else. Isaiah did nothing. The initiative was totally God's. Isaiah was a sinful man. He deserved nothing but death in the presence of a holy God. It was totally God's act. Totally God's initiative. Totally God's grace and plan to atone for his sins. And in that very moment, Isaiah realized two things. He realized, number one, I'm more sinful than I ever knew. And number two, I'm more loved than I ever imagined. And soon God would give him the privilege of announcing to the world God's plan to touch the whole world with the coal. God was going to send the world a servant. And in chapter 43, one of the great chapters of the whole Bible, Isaiah preached about him. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds were healed. And we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord 
has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Some years ago, back around Easter time, Time Magazine had this cover. And the big story was, why did Jesus have to die? And there was a long article filled with opinions about what the death of Jesus meant. But here's what I thought was ironic about that cover. You'll notice up in the top right-hand corner, there are two other little articles that the magazine alludes to. One, horror in Fallujah. A story about brutality and prejudice and murder and violence that the most powerful army the world has ever seen can't stop. Because armies cannot eradicate the darkness that's in men's hearts. And right under that there's another story. Confessions of a Tycho juror. And it's an article about corruption and greed that the most sophisticated judicial system in the history of man can't end. Because it can't eliminate the darkness in men's hearts. And Time Magazine says, why did Jesus have to die? Ironically, they answered the question on the cover. Because this is a wicked, broken world. And our politics and our economics are never going to fix it. Isaiah foretold of a day when the fire of God would come down on His servant. It was the only hope for a world and the only cure for sin. And that day came, it was called Calvary. The glory of God showed up and guess what happened. Well, read it for yourself in Matthew. When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook. And the rocks split. See, this is what God does. He cleanses before He calls. And then Isaiah heard this incredible word. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I don't know why God does that. I do not know why God doesn't just send angels. They're a lot more obedient. They don't talk back. But God has sovereignly chosen to call forgiven sinners who have been shaken to their core by an experience of His glory to send them into a broken world as His messengers. See, nothing about the circumstances have changed. Uzziah is still dead. The Assyrians are still on the border. Isaiah has changed. He's ready to volunteer before he even knows what the job is. Who will I send? Me, me, send me. He didn't even know what God wants him to do yet. It doesn't matter. He's answering the shake-up call. And so should you. See, here's the deal. Just like Isaiah, you'll step up when God goes from hobby to heavy. Churches are filled with people for whom God is a hobby. 
And for those people, the agenda of life is to keep it nice and safe and tidy. And they live under the illusion that they are seeing the big picture. But what they need, what we all need, is an experience where God shows up and throws His weight around. Because if you are out of touch with the reality of God, you are out of touch with the reality. And I'll say that again. If you're out of touch with the reality of a holy God, then you are out of touch with reality. Let me, uh, let me close with a story Tim Keller tells. Powerful preacher in Manhattan, but as a young, young man, he was in Colorado at a camp. And the teacher that night brought a word that changed his life. That night, the teacher held up a sheet of paper. And it said, I want you to imagine that the thickness of this sheet of paper represents the distance from the earth to the sun. This thickness, one sheet of paper, represents 93 million miles. So how many pieces of paper would we have to put on each other to get the distance from the earth to the nearest star? It would be a stack 70 feet high. And how high would the stack have to be to get across our galaxy? The stack of papers would be 310 miles high. And our galaxy is just one speck in a universe of galaxies that the Bible says Jesus holds together by the power of His Word. And then the teacher said, And this is who you have asked to come into your life to be your Assistant? I want you to go for an hour and walk in these woods and ponder what I just said. And here's what happened to young Tim Keller. I remember very, very clearly. I realized up to that point I wanted God to be available to me. But I began during that walk to sense God's reality. I began to experience His glory. He stopped being a concept. He started being a reality. And I realized no matter what he said, no matter what he did, no matter what he let come into my life, because of who he was, I needed to be available to him. Period. Unconditionally available. You see, when God is a hobby, you move him around wherever you want him to be. But when God is heavy, He moves you around. And one glimpse of the big picture, and you'll start every morning saying, Lord, I'm in. No matter what you ask today, I'm in. And so I want us to take a moment and just acknowledge and worship true reality. I've asked uh, there to be just a time of worship to follow this teaching. I'll get back up in a second and finish it.
But for the next few moments, could we try to get the big picture? We're going to start by singing, Holy, Holy, Holy. Now what I'd like us to do, I'd like the sopranos to stand up, please, and sing that first verse. I'd like the altos to join on the second, the tenors the third, and all of us will stand on the fourth. We're going to take a moment, and we're just going to be in the presence of the ultimate reality. So ladies, if you sing soprano, would you stand? And let's sing.
song because God can't call who he hasn't cleansed. If you have never been covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, then your sin is not atoned for. Someone must die for sin. It must be the sinner or the sinner's substitute. So we'll sing this song and invite you to come and confess Jesus. Ask him to be your substitute. Be baptized into his death and resurrection. Call on his name. And the gift of righteousness is yours because God must cleanse before he can call. You come while we sing.